Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our podcast. On this episode, we have Dr. Ed Felton on. Ed is a professor of computer science at Princeton. He served as chief technologist at the FTC and deputy CTO at the White House. He's also the co-founder of Offchain Labs, a Princeton-based startup that's focusing on second layer smart contract solutions to improve scalability. This is one of our favorite conversations to date. We discuss smart contracts and their current problems. We discuss Arbitrum, off-chain lab solution to the smart contract scaling problem, which basically uses a system of validators to provide a guarantee to smart contract participants. Moreover, we discuss at length how their antitrust guarantee works and why only a single validator is needed to maintain a working system. We also go through how an existing DApp can get ported over to Arbitrum. Finally, we talk high-level tech themes. This part was really a lot of fun. How technology and public policy are becoming more and more interconnected, how technology advising will become more and more important over time, and other technologies that he's really excited and optimistic about. It's a really packed episode. Enjoy. My first introduction to you was through the awesome Coursera course that your team put together a few years back. I think something interesting that you've said in the past that I'd love to learn a little more about is this idea that you know Bitcoin works in practice, but not in theory. So I thought that was really interesting, kind of funny. I'd love to know a little more about what you meant by that. Well, yeah, so th- this is something that some academics have said. And the idea is this, that the Bitcoin is, has a really clever design, but when academics like myself and others tried to come in and sort of explain why it works or why it's stable, try to come up with a basic theory of why it should work. It's hard to do. There's just gaps. And you can't debate whether it has remained stable and whether with many billions of dollars at stake, the system has has stood up. It has. But we still don't have a completely adequate theory as to why that should be the case. So um, it's an interesting place to be as an academic, and it's one of the reasons why I've found this technology interesting for a long time. Yep. You know, I originally come from finance, and there was a sort of unsaid rule early on that if you were interested in Bitcoin, you really shouldn't talk about it, like the whole Fight Club thing. And I've also heard stories in other industries. Again, this is an econ, so maybe it's different in CompSci, where, you know, advisors recommended some students stay away from crypto topics. This is earlier on, you know, 2011, 12, 13. So just curious, were those attitudes kind of similar in CompSci or were they different? I think there were some. I feel like some of us who were there early uh, had to kind of convince the community that there were really interesting research topics there, that it wasn't just a fad, and that although some of the Bitcoin advocates said some uh, pretty out there things, there really was a there there. (laughs) And uh, the fact that it was difficult to explain and analyze was, and yet seemed to be working, uh, was a, a really important question. Yep. 
And moving on to a little bit on the smart contract side. So I think we're all pretty familiar with what smart contracts are, but if I could kind of summarize them, could I say they're basically a set of rules that network participants agree on when engaging in a particular interaction? Yeah, exactly. Right. You agree on a set of rules and then you essentially use a cryptocurrency system or a blockchain as the referee to enforce those rules. Yep. And the types of things we want with smart contracts, I guess, are scalability and security. Interop is something that I think is getting a lot more attention more recently. So like compatibility between chains and things like that. What are some of the primary problems with smart contracts at the moment? I think the ones you mentioned are definitely there. Smart contracts are really enticing technology. But if you look at a platform like, say, Ethereum, if you think of it as, as offering a kind of shared virtual computer that everyone can run their smart contracts on, that computer just isn't up to the task of supporting everyone's smart contracts. It, it doesn't have enough throughput. The global computing capacity of Ethereum, for example, is about a tenth of a laptop. And everyone in the world has to share that. Uh, storage <laughs> costs a lot. Storage costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of times what uh, storage on, say, Amazon uh, S3 costs. And so these costs and the limits of scalability that come along with that are really limiting the application of this technology. And I think you're going to see a huge explosion of smart contract applications as the scalability problems are removed. Yep. And before we get into uh, specifically how off-chain is approaching the scalability issue, we'd love to talk a little more about real-world applications of smart contracts, because I, I think that's something that would help our audience quite a bit. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of good example areas. One of them, for sure, is to build private chains. So you can imagine a set of, say, companies that are in some sector that want to set up a trading platform that they can use with custom rules. And they want to run it efficiently, they want to run it securely, and they don't necessarily want everyone in the world to see everything that's happening on it. And so that idea of just building a private chain or a private market is, is one of the big application areas. I think there's a bunch of interesting applications in sort of in taking some things that are available in the finance sector and making them available more broadly, sort of at smaller scale to more people. And this starts with very simple uh, arrangements like escrow, but also uh, sort of derivative securities and, and simple things. And then finally, there's applications in areas like gaming, where people want to know that rules are being followed, and without having to trust any one particular party to be doing it. Okay, so I guess this is a good good spot to kind of get into what uh, off-chain is doing. So as, as you mentioned before, you know, there's a lot of talk around Ethereum and scaling. And, you know, this, of course, means different things to different people, gas fees, size of contracts, and so forth. I think recently there was like a spam contract hitting the network and that hogged resources for a while. So stuff like that happens all the time. And I guess there's this kind of the path to going to 2.0 is still kind of up in the air. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the basic idea is you want to move as much as you can off the main chain, right? And have the main chain just be kind of the referee of last resort. The details of how to do that, of course, are hard. And that's our company and a bunch of other startups are in that space. Yep. So what is uh, Offchain's approach here? Our approach is, without getting too deep into the technical weeds, fundamentally what we do is we allow parties to to negotiate off-chain, if you will, what a particular contract will do. And if everyone agrees, if all the interested parties in a contract agree on what the contract will do, then you don't even need to go to chain. You can just sort of mutually agree on that. 
But if there's a disagreement between the parties about what a contract will do, then you need to go to chain to resolve that. So the secret sauce, if you will, in our technology is a mechanism for very efficiently resolving disputes about what a contract will do. That put together with mechanisms that create incentives or parties to agree off-chain basically means you can run, make a lot of progress on an individual contract while not having to go to the main chain. And by reducing the load on the main chain, you do two things. One is you reduce cost and increase scalability. But the other one is you get privacy because what you don't put on chain doesn't become known to the public. Got it. So, and you're currently, the plan is to run on Ethereum and are there, is there a plan yeah. to move to other chains as well? Yeah, the initial, the initial implementation is on Ethereum and it's compatible with Ethereum, meaning that people can write their smart contracts in Solidity just like they would on Ethereum. And we provide a compiler that takes your standard Solidity code and compiles it to run on our architecture. Our architecture also allows contracts to, to send and receive Ether with normal Ethereum contracts as well as other kinds of tokens. So the idea is we want to make it as easy as possible for people who have contracts that can run on Ethereum to move them over to our platform, get the advantages of scalability and privacy without having to rewrite everything. Yeah, I would love to talk about, you know, how we might port an existing dApp over to Arbitrum. But before that, so one thing uh, while reading through the white paper, the whole incentive structure here is really interesting. So as I understand it, you know, there's a set of validators who basically give their thumbs up on a transaction. Right. So trying to kind of understand the incentives and game theory, do we need a single validator or do all validators need to agree to keep the system honest? Right. The guarantee that we give to you is that as long as at least one of the validators of your contract is honest, then the contract will execute correctly. So the system gives all of the validators an incentive to agree on correct behavior. And if they all agree, then the system accepts that. But if there's a disagreement among validators, then there's a dispute resolution process that happens. And the validators who are in the dispute are each putting down a deposit, which they'll lose if they lose the dispute. So basically, this gives all of the validators an incentive to not dispute a valid claim about what a contract is going to do, and also to not make a false claim about what a contract is going to do. Basically, if there's a dispute, someone's going to lose, someone's going to be sorry. And so the incentive of everyone is to not get into a dispute, but to agree off-chain on what's going to happen. Yep. And what does it mean for that only one validator needs to be honest? I think that part I'm not totally clear on. Yeah. So imagine that you have, let's say, a contract that's doing a a private trading platform among, say, a dozen companies, right? Each of those dozen companies would be a validator. So you'd have a dozen validators. And what we guarantee we can give is that if you're a validator, then as long as you behave honestly, you know that you won't be cheated, You have the power, even if the other 11 gang up on you, you have the power to enforce correct behavior, either because everyone's going to agree with you unanimously about what's correct, or if there's a dispute that you know you'll be able to win the dispute. And that's kind of the thing that makes the whole system go, the idea that the on-chain mechanism can very efficiently figure out who's lying if there is a dispute. And that creates the incentive for everyone to tell the truth. And I can see this particular dynamic being really valuable for private blockchains where you have companies that want to be able to ensure this, where they can't be ganged up on. Right, that's right. So in general, this mode of operation works for any contract where you can make a list of all of the interested parties who are involved in the contract. 
you just make each of those interested parties a validator. And the result is that the, your contract is trustless. That is, any, each one can ensure that their interest is protected. Now, there's another mode of operation. If you have a contract that's kind of big and open that you want the public to be able to participate in, where you allow anyone to act as a validator. So anyone can come in and make a claim about what the contract is going to do or dispute anyone else's claim. And so that allows you to have a contract that is open and trustless for everyone. And it's not quite as efficient, but it's still much more efficient than native than native Ethereum would be. Got it. And um, sticking with this idea of like privacy and private blockchains, your white paper mentions that you know everything happens within Arbitrum other than you have to touch the main chain on startup or when transferring currency in and out. And otherwise, you can essentially operate the same way that a private blockchain would with these calls or currency transfers in and out. Are there any limitations that Arbitrum has that a fully private blockchain wouldn't have? No, you can move Ether or you can move any token that's defined on Ethereum, any ERC-20 or ERC-721 token. You can move into Arbitrum, give it to an Arbitrum contract, and that contract can do absolutely anything that Solidity allows it to do with that token. So in terms of functionality, you can do everything that you could do with an Ethereum contract. But what you get is you can move a lot of the activity off-chain to give you better scalability and better privacy. Got it. So how does this work with respect to... So I guess one of the goals here, you want to keep the resolutions cheap for all parties in the smart contract. How are we able to do that? Yeah, so... There's two things going on. First of all, the incentive structure makes it unlikely that you would actually have a dispute because if there is a dispute, someone's going to lose a big deposit. But if there is a dispute, the way it works is this, that you can think of the dispute as starting out as being a disagreement about what a contract will do after it in executing some number N of steps of instructions in a basic architecture. And so the dispute resolution goes in two steps. The first step is to narrow down the dispute. You have a dispute about n steps of execution. And now the party who made, and someone says, no, that's not right. So now the party who made the claim has to break their n step assertion into two smaller assertions that are half as big. And then the challenger picks one of those to challenge. And so you've cut the size of the dispute in half very cheaply because the on-chain mechanism doesn't need to understand anything about what's going on. It just needs to know that, yes, you have broken it in half. And so then you do this over and over. You cut in half and in half again and so on. And so after a, a small number, a logarithmic number of these back and forths, you've narrowed down the dispute to a dispute about what one instruction of execution in the virtual machine will do. That's a very small dispute. So that instruction might be an add instruction that takes two numbers and adds them together. You now have a dispute about what the add instruction does when given certain data. So then the next step of it, once you've gotten down to a single step of a disagreement or disagreement about a single step of execution, is that the party who was making a claim about what will happen in one step has to provide a very small proof on chain that their claim about what that one step will do is correct. And we've done a bunch of complicated things in the design of the virtual machine architecture that makes those one-step proofs very small and very cheap. So okay. they're a few hundred bytes in size, and they cost order of 100,000 gas on Ethereum, which is a few dollars worth of gas to resolve. So all that means that dispute resolution, A, hardly ever happens, and B, when it happens, is really cheap on-chain. And that's the key kind of to making the whole thing go. 
Yeah, I th- I had watched a video on YouTube of think of uh, your guys presentation at ETH New York. And one of the interesting things that I had heard about the Arbitrum VM was that kind of there were two things, right? That all instructions can be emulated in small constant time. And then that uh, one step proofs are of small constant size. So, and that means that they can be verified in small constant time. And that kind of just translates to everything being really cheap, if that kind of summarizes what you had just said. Yeah, exactly right. So, and we've done a bunch of a bunch of what we discovered in the research that under that was that's underlies all of this is how to rearchitect a virtual machine architecture so that that's true, so that all instructions can be emulated or proven in small constant time and space. And having done that, then generates the opportunity to have really cheap dispute resolution. And a question a little more on the CompSci side, not that all the other stuff isn't CompSci, but as far as a Merkle tree goes, so the the VM is a Merkle tree. Can you help us understand that and how it translates to this notion of cheap resolution? Yeah, so a Merkle tree basically is a way of computing a cryptographic hash of a large amount of data. Cryptographic hash can be used as a kind of digest. It's a way of committing to what that data is without having to publish all of it. And so the idea of a Merkle tree is you can imagine if you have a large amount of data, you can set up a diagram that looks kind of like a a tournament, an elimination tournament, right? Where you have a whole lot of things coming in, and at each level they get the number of them gets cut in half. Mm -hmm. Except instead of, or you can build, think of it as a tree. Except instead of having um, it be like a tournament at each level, basically you compute a cryptographic hash of the two levels below you. And that commits to the full details of what is below you in the tournament or in the tree. And so by sort of stepwise, by having pairwise combinations of these data items sort of up through a tree, the result is you end up with a single cryptographic hash that summarizes the whole thing, but is very small. And one of the advantages of that is that if you think of there being a tree data structure, if you make rearrangements in that tree that are relatively simple, then like, say, rotating the tree a little bit at one point, then you can update the global hash very cheaply. So it's the combination of having this sort of tree-based hashing structure, a Merkle tree, with arranging things so that the instructions of the virtual machine are sort of only relatively simple rearrangements of that tree. That's what lets you represent all of the instructions really cheaply. I mean, you get to some pretty deep computer science there, but the bottom line is is really just that you get a very fast ability to prove or emulate any instruction. Yep. And we mentioned earlier about or how one could port an existing dApp to Arbitrum. What would that process be like today? Uh, well, it's pretty easy. We provide a compiler that takes Solidity code and compiles it into Arbitrum code so that you can execute it on our architecture. So for many applications, you just take your Solidity dApp and you run it through the Arbitrum compiler and you're good to go. We have a plugin for Truffle, which is a commonly used uh, system for managing build and deployment of contracts that lets you just use Truffle in a natural way. You type one command line and your dApp gets compiled for Arbitrum and it's ready to go. So except for some corner cases that we don't handle or that would require some rewriting, which we think are pretty rare, basically it's just a compile-and-go kind of approach. We're really focused on making it as easy as possible for people to port stuff over from Ethereum. 
Yep. And I think I had read that the build process kind of uses Docker in the background. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We make pretty heavy use of Docker to both to make the build process run across, you know, from a software engineering standpoint, to make it likely to work on your machine, whatever setup you have. But also it's a way of generating outputs that are relatively portable. And this notion of the any trust, there's two things I wanted to talk about with respect yeah. to porting. One is the any trust guarantee and also EthBridge. So what is the any trust degree? Oh, guarantee, sorry. Any trust is, is our word for this idea that you have a set of validators who you choose for your contract. And as long as any one of them is behaving honestly, you're guaranteed correct behavior. So you just have to trust any one of okay. the validators. And that's a big advantage over some alternatives. You don't have to assume that two-thirds of them are honest or anything like that. If One of the consequences of any trust is that if you're a validator, then you know that you don't have to trust anybody else. Yep. Got it. And this is basically what we were talking about earlier with respect to only one validator needing to be exactly uh, honest, right? Right. right. And, and okay. the whole system is designed to give you that guarantee. Yep. And... EthBridge, so how does this, obviously it sounds like a bridge between Arbitrum and the Ethereum main chain. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the EthBridge, it, it, it's exactly as you suggested, that it is it is the bridge between Arbitrum land and Ethereum land, if you will. So it's a smart contract that runs on the Ethereum main chain, which does the minimal amount of stuff needed to bridge between between Arbitrum and Ethereum. And so that means it manages the flows of tokens back and forth. If you want to pay across that bound, move move tokens across that boundary, you do it through the ETH bridge. The ETH bridge res- does the dispute resolution process we talked about before. And it sort of does the bookkeeping to keep track of which Arbitrum contracts have been launched and what state they're in. So basically just the minimal bookkeeping that needs to happen on the Ethereum chain. So you get Ethereum level trust in that process. So on Arbitrum's GitHub, there's a note that you know Arbitrum's currently in, in alpha and should not be used in production environments. So what are the key issues that need to be solved kind of to be able to get to uh, get to a production environment? I think it's a few things. There are some security features that still need to be added that we hope to be pushing out pretty soon just to make sure that the system is bulletproof against certain kinds of denial of service attacks, for example. That's number one. And number two is, you know, we take really seriously our responsibility to developers that if we're going to invite them to put their applications or their money on our system, that, you know, we've had the level of security audit and so on that we need. So we need more shakedown and we need to have serious security audit, we think, happen before we would recommend that people put real money on it. So we're moving to a mode of we're close to announcing that it's available on a test chain. You know, but we need to do a bunch more security assurance before we recommend people use it with real money. Got it. Is there a kind of general time frame that you're thinking with respect? So you mentioned testnet soon. Um, is there kind of yeah. a time frame you're thinking for uh, mainnet? Let's see. So mainnet release. It's it's always risky to. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're talking about early 2020. Okay. That's the ballpark we're in. That's what's on our development roadmap. Yep. And so one reason I imagine that you chose Ethereum as well is it has a pretty large developer tooling and community. What other chains you think are pretty well suited for Arbitrum? Well, the basic technology is pretty much agnostic as to what chain it's on top of. Yep. There needs to be at least some minimal support for smart contracts so we can build the EthBridge or whatever you'd call it on the other platform. Mm-hmm. Something that can do the dispute resolution and so on. But given that, we could really be on top of almost any other chain. And as you said, we're on Ethereum because that's where the developers are. But if the developers are somewhere else, 
in the future, we're definitely, we can be there. And we've been looking at, we've been doing two things really. First of all is try to engineer the system in a way that will be relatively portable over time. But second, to watch where the developer interest is. And uh, certainly we can go somewhere else if the developers are there. One question I have kind of broadly, so with with respect to Bitcoin, there, okay, so there's RSK Labs, which is working on some kind of smart contract federated peg with Bitcoin. There's also a mini script, which was launched recently, I think is supposed to slowly help be able to write some contracts on top of Bitcoin. We'd love to understand how that might fit into your worldview. I know, you know, writing smart contract in Bitcoin is very difficult, but if it gets easier over time, how do you think about that? Well, certainly we're watching Bitcoin carefully. Right now, we don't see the support there that we would need to build a an ETH bridge or to build a dispute resolution protocol that would let you really fully interoperate with Bitcoin. But certainly, you know, the instant that exists and is solid, we would be very interested. So yep. we're watching that space carefully. Yep. And uh, one other thing I noticed in the white paper is that uh, you are planning to support more than just Solidity. I think I mentioned C++, Python, Go, Rust. Is the idea there that that will help manage the transition away from just being part of Ethereum? Or is that something that's planned even earlier? It's planned earlier. These things will be useful for managing the transition. But we think there's a lot of demand for development on Ethereum or compatible platforms that use languages other than Solidity. So, uh, you know, I think long term Solidity is probably not going to be the answer that we're going to see people programming in other in other languages, using other toolkits. And so for all those reasons, it's been an important part of our roadmap to have a broader set of language supports. And uh, that's something that we're still working on. And with respect to the uh, just the overall business, so how big is the team currently at Offchain? The team currently is, we're six. Yep. So we're small but mighty. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we're growing. We're hiring engineers. We're hiring uh, product and marketing type folks. And, you know, we expect to be growing um, continually as we go forward. Uh, so yep. if anybody's listening, you're interested in the job in any of these areas, we're cer- we'd certainly be interested in hearing from you. Awesome. And moving a little more towards uh, a couple of uh, broad blockchain and crypto uh, related questions I had. So in the past, you kind of, you've said that you think of blockchain as kind of this uh technology toolbox with interconnected texts and some maturity levels and some are at other maturity levels and that they'll be specialized on different things. So payments, smart contracts, et cetera. Is that pretty fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're not going to have a thousand blockchains or cryptocurrencies going forward. We're going to have a few that are specialized for different purposes. Yep. And so given the different maturity levels, where would you say there's not enough attention being paid to within this space? I think questions of sort of uh, finality time and latency maybe don't get as much attention as they should. Mm-hmm. How can you be sure that your your transaction or your action, your payment is really final relatively quickly? That's something that real people want when they're doing right. transactions. If you're buying a sandwich, right, you don't want to wait around 10 minutes for your, for your payment to go through. Yep. And especially the ability to do that in smart contracts, I think that's important. I think there's some issues around sort of security and reliability that are going to be big going forward. The consequences of bugs in smart contract code or platform code can be pretty severe. And uh, so you're going to see, I think, highly secure engineering get applied in some settings. And we'll see some high assurance systems that, that are interesting. Yep. And this is a personal kind of curiosity of mine. How does it generally work when... 
you know, academics kind of want to work with their research on the industry side, because I imagine, I think that a lot of the work that was done for off-chain was done at Princeton. So just curious how that works just on a kind of like, how does it happen level? Right. So the early research that led to this technology was done as academic research at Princeton, and we published it as peer-reviewed research and so on. And so Princeton, like a lot of universities, has an intellectual property policies and agreement with the faculty and, and students, which covered this. So some of the basic intellectual property that we're using was the property of Princeton. And so when we started the company, we made a license agreement with Princeton, um, in which we, in which we licensed the, um, the, that IP. And uh, so just like anyone else would. And then there's, there's additional IP that we've developed on the company side. So from my standpoint as a faculty member and founder, there are issues around intellectual property ownership that need to be clear. And then there are conflict of interest issues, right? Where I need to make sure that I'm not using current students wearing their academic hats to do stuff that really is for my company. <laughs> right. <laughs> I need the world separate. Yep. University faculty are allowed and encouraged to do outside work to kind of broaden their horizons and to learn about sectors other than the one they work in. Mm -hmm. And so I and others, I've been doing stuff on the side, uh, moonlighting a little bit for pretty much my whole career. Uh, and it's been really valuable for, I think, for my academic work. So this is like another example of that, right? Yep. Um, as long as I keep the lines clear and I'm not I'm not using university resources directly to benefit the company, then I'm free to do this. And 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 I think the university rightly sees it as win-win when there's entrepreneurship that grows out of their work. Right. That only helps them the more and more you succeed. Exactly right. So it helps them and you know, they want to be a nucleus for tech innovation and startups and so on. And this this kind of thing is part of that whole story. Yep. And uh, moving on to your background as an advisor to the White House and FTC, what were the kinds of things you were advising on at the time? At the FTC, it was a lot of privacy and consumer protection. We're, the FTC deals with uh, anybody who's trying to uh, cheat or rip off consumers online or uh, offline for that matter, but online was really what I was working on. And also antitrust. So did some some antitrust work at that time. That was 2011 and 12. Then in the White House, I was there for the last two years of the Obama administration, and I was one of the most senior computer scientists on the White House staff. So I worked on a bunch of different things. The biggest thing I worked on was a policy initiative on AI and machine learning and trying to work toward a national strategy in that area. But I worked on some national security things. I worked on some computer science education I worked on regulatory issues like on self-driving cars and drones. Really was a lot of different stuff. Yep. Technology touches almost everything in policy these days. And so if you're a computer scientist who has is versed to some extent in policy and in those places, you get invited to a lot of meetings and get involved in a lot of different things. Yep. And uh, as you said, the technology is more and more ingrained in, in politics and society, of course, much more so than, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Although and there's probably some similarities with particular kind of technologies that came about. I think one example is kind of the uh, the whole encryption, the technology of encryption and how it was treated yeah. in the U.S. in the 90s and all that. So how do, as a scientist, you know, how do you help politicians and policymakers navigate these technologies? Because there's so many, you know, AI, machine learning, cryptocurrency, data, privacy, there's so many issues. I guess, how do you kind of like silo them and help them understand them? Sure. I mean, some of it is 
part of the job is to help them understand which things are important, which things they read about in the news are important, and which are just kind of a flash in the pan. So what are the trends? What are the big technologies to pay attention to? So a question like how important are cryptocurrencies and blockchain? And should government be spending a lot of time thinking about those? That's the kind of question that a policymaker might come to an expert with. Yep. So that's number one, just like what's important and what's not. But then when there are specific issues that come up, like say how to handle encryption and the trade-offs there, there's a kind of an educational role. So part of what I would do is help policymakers understand enough about the technology that they were able to evaluate the arguments and listen to the participants and sort of understand what's going on, try to help them see their way through what was going on. And some of that is briefings and memos and so on. And some of it is just being available for, for stuff. Yep. And then there's just like very short-term things. Like if there's uh, some big data breach that's in the news and the press secretary thinks that he might get a question about it at the daily press briefing, yep. right? They, they might reach out to some internal technical expert and say, hey, tell us what's going on here. What do we know? What do we not know? Whose responsibility is it to address this? And stuff like that. Yep. So it's really kind of multifaceted, but in a way, you're kind of a guide to a, almost like a guide to a foreign culture for the policymakers as much as anything else. Yep. And I guess what's really interesting these days is that there's so many tensions now between policy and technology and, you know, where things are headed. So that's really interesting to see in, in here. You know, as, as time progresses, a lot of these technologies are going to get even more complex and more ingrained. How do you see this kind of advisory role changing over time? Well, I think it's going to become more important. There's little doubt about that. And there's a growing community of people who are learning to do this, this work, who kind of at the boundary between computer science and public policy. You know, there's a lot of, for a senior policymaker, you know, talking about the ultimate example of that being the president. You know, the president has to deal with a lot of really complicated areas. Right. You know, we understand how complicated technology and the tech industry and ecosystem are, but there's all kinds of super complicated things that they need to deal with. They need to deal with a lot of very complicated international relations questions. They need to deal with a lot of really complicated questions about the economy. And one of the things that really impressed me or surprised me in being involved in policy discussions is how many super complicated things a leader has to deal with. And one of the core skills, I think, that a president or really any other senior policymaker has to have is the ability to work with different kinds of experts on different topics and kind of absorb enough quickly enough that they have good instincts for how to navigate and how to talk to people in different areas. Yep. Because it's really, you know, as, as we see the complexity of our stuff, but there are so many different areas that are equally complex and there's a whole sets of experts and whole sets of knowledge there as well. Yep. So I think over time, I mean, uh, tech is going to be more like other areas where, you know, there are well-established structures to advise the president about economics and the economy, for example. I think we'll see similar structures for technology. That's really, really interesting. And not to put you on the spot, but kind of what are the few key areas you think that policymakers should focus on at the moment? I mean, when it comes to tech, I think of a few things. There is a bunch of I think really important issues around consumer protection online. There are some ways in which the technology ecosystem doesn't serve people very well. And just making sure that people are well enough protected. I think privacy is one of these areas where 
the flows of data are pretty extreme and most people feel like they are not in a position to protect or defend themselves as they deal with the, the whole data industry. I think that's one. Issues around the kind of power and role of big tech companies, of big tech, that's a big deal. There's a, there's a real backlash now in the culture mm -hmm. um, and in the policy world against big tech companies, which I think has gone too far. But understanding how to manage all of that, I think, is a big is a big deal. And then just sort of at a meta level, understanding how our institutions and our policy process needs to change so that we can be better at making policy about tech. So you recently co-authored a paper titled A Cryptographic Escrow for Treaty Declarations and Step-by-Step -step Verification. I had read the abstract and it sounded super interesting. How would this work in practice? Yeah, so what this paper is talking about is the ways that you can use advanced cryptography in verifying arms control agreements. So the idea is that in an arms control agreement, a country might commit to having only some limited number of certain kinds of devices or to have them or to be accountable for where they are in certain ways. And the question is, how do you audit those commitments without requiring the country to reveal everything about what they have and where it is? Yep. Right, a country doesn't want to reveal to a would-be adversary exactly what they have and exactly where it is. On the other hand, you want, so just like a complete transparency approach to accountability might not work. You might not be able to get that agreement. And so what we're looking at is, are there ways that a country can cryptographically commit to what it is they have? And then you can do selective auditing. So that if they're cheating, you can have confidence that you're likely to catch them that they don't have to reveal everything. And there's a bunch of complicated methods for cryptographic auditing that have been used in an online setting that one of my co-authors realized you could use it in an arms control setting as well. We're basically trying to play that out and figure out how that would actually work. Yep. And it looks like it's promising. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Yeah, I'd re the abstract just sounded really fascinating. And to leave on a couple kind of high notes, you know, what are some optimistic texts that people aren't really paying. You know, there's a lot of news about AI and machine learning and a lot of other things, but what are some optimistic technologies that people aren't really paying a lot of attention to at the moment? I'm a big believer that smart contracts are going to be a big deal once we unleash this technology. I think that's going to make a huge difference. And as smart contracts become more common and as people figure out use cases, and especially as the technology is a little bit more housebroken for a broader range of developers to use it with confidence. I think there's going to be a lot there. I'm also really, really positive, even in the medium term, about autonomous technologies, about especially self-driving vehicles, even little delivery robots that don't even go mm -hmm. on the streets. The ability to move stuff and people around much more cheaply, the ability to give mobility to people who can't drive for one reason or another, I think is going to make a mm -hmm. huge difference. And it's going to open up a ton of economic opportunity, and it's going to open up a ton of opportunity for people, which includes old people and kids and others who don't have yep. mobility. So I'm, I'm super positive on, on that technology going forward. Great. And we'll probably need smart contracts for those technologies as well. Uh, certainly smart contracts will help us price them. It will help us make deals and manage the risk and everything. You know, we'll, the day will come when we don't think of smart contracts as being something that's unusual. They're just sort of woven into the structures that we use yep. every day. And where can people find out more about you in Off-Chain Labs? If you want to find out about the company, 
Offchainlabs.com is our website. We're writing some technical stuff about what we're doing on Medium, Offchain Labs there, Offchain Labs on Twitter. About me personally, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ed Felton and the last name E-D-F-E-L-T-E-N. Or my website at Princeton, you can Google me and find my Princeton website and see my academic side there. Awesome. Hey, everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thank you.